name is Daniel T, and welcome to the SA Fireside Podcast. Each week, we bring you another fireside chat with an old-timer discussing the questions and topics we compiled surveying the world of SA. You can visit us on safireside.com to hear all the recordings. And if you have any questions or feedback, you can email me at daniel at safireside.com. Sexaholics Anonymous is a fellowship of men and women who share their experience, strength, and hope with each other that they may solve their common problem and help others to recover. The only requirement for membership is a desire to stop lusting and become sexually sober. There are no dues or fees for SA membership. We are self-supporting through our own contributions. SA is not allied with any sect, denomination, politics, organization, or institution, does not wish to engage in any controversy, neither endorses nor opposes any causes. Our primary purpose is to stay sexually sober and help others to achieve sexual sobriety. It's our hope and our goal that this recording will help those old and new to the program to gain more tools that will help further their recovery. And so, without further ado, it's time to hear today's Fireside Chat. Welcome back to another Essay Fireside Chat. Today, I sat down with Noach S. from the New York area. Noach is sober since the 16th of January, 1989. When he first joined SA, the meeting in Manhattan had only three people in it. SA now has hundreds of members in the New York area. In Noach's own words, SA has literally saved his life. It was an amazing fireside chat, and I'm sure you will gain as much as I did. Thank you for joining me for another SA fireside chat. Today we have Noach here uh, from the States. Thank you for joining me, Noach. Thank you. Um, it's a pleasure to see you again. Uh, I had the pleasure of meeting you in person a few times, and uh, I always love to hear what you have to say. So, as I mentioned, we're going to start with uh, a brief qualification around five minutes, what it was like, five minutes, what happened, and then what, what it's like now, and then we'll go into these questions. So, it, at that note, it's over to you. Okay. Would you mind stopping me every five minutes? <laughs> I'll give you a note, no problem. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you. So uh, my name is Noah, and um, I'm a great, fully recovering sexaholic. And my sobriety date is January 16th, 1989. And uh, prior to January 16th, 1989, I was a total mess. Even after January 16th, 1989, I was a total mess until... Uh, uh, I gave time, time in the program. But prior to that, uh, I had uh, a suicide attempt. That's how big the pain was. That's how great the pain was. I, I was working in the uh, in a building on the 21st floor and I, was, I couldn't deal with the duplicity of my life. At one point I was uh, dressed as a Hasidic religious spiritual man and the other time I was doing things that I just couldn't believe that I was doing. And this duplicity and this contradiction, this pain was causing me, uh, I just couldn't live with it anymore. So I decided to uh, end my life. 
I uh, opened up the the window. I was working on the in the Empire State Building. I opened up the I was we were on the twenty first floor, and I opened up the window and I started shaking out the window, and uh, beg God for the willingness to jump out the window. <laughs> so I guess I learned how to beg as God for willingness, <laughs> and uh, I couldn't do it. You know, I just I just couldn't do it. And I just ended up on the floor and I was uh, crying, crying uh, that I can't deal with this pain. Uh, I started acting out when I was a kid like everyone else. And it started out as uh, simple masturbation and walked into those days. There was no... Uh, pornography on on the internet just magazines just progressed and progressed with other boys in yeshiva and then uh, progressed and uh, of course we like everybody else I had the vision that once I would get married everything would end uh, I think the most that it progressed was uh, my father was dying of cancer in a hospital and uh, I would go I couldn't go visit him. He was dying, and uh, on the way to the hospital, I picked up a prostitute in the street. And on the way back, I picked up a prostitute, and it was just daily occurrences. I would be teaching. I was a Rebbe in yeshiva, and that's how I would spend my day. I was exhausted at the end of the day, and and this was, uh, I really didn't have any time to think about where my life was going, but this is where the disease really progressed. Just thinking about it, uh, the waste of time, and the waste of money, and the waste of, uh, I still have pain of that. So even the step that says that we will not, uh, we will not regret the past, but uh, see how our past will help others still causes me, I don't know if it causes me regret, but it causes me pain, shame. So maybe I am not working the steps <laughs> like I should. And uh, and there was an ongoing occurrence, even though I was married. I, I left yeshiva, I fought, I did not, uh, my, there are other people in program who, they look good on the outside, they, they were sex addicts on the inside, but they look good on the outside. I was not, I was a total mess. I was, I fought with the Hanhala, I fought with everybody in the street. I was a wreck. I was totally uh, um, uh, a classic Meshuggah. And uh, I left my job in yeshiva. I had a very uh, prominent position and uh, I, I destroyed it, you know, and uh, I had a position that everyone would have loved to have. I was, uh, I was teaching the top class and uh, because of my fighting with the principal of the school, he reduced me to see teaching second grade, which I should have taken it and kept going, but I still fought around with everybody, you know. And then I said, the hell with you. And I went to a different issue. Before you know it, I was unemployed. And uh, being unemployed for a sex addict is uh, just added to my disease. And I was just acting out more and more. And finally, I became an insurance agent and uh, with a lot of time on my hand and, and uh, 
my disease in my head was going crazy. If I made a sale, I was on top of the world. So I went to celebrate and I picked up a prostitute. And prior to that, I was a salesman. I was in the jewelry business. I traveled around the country. I picked up prostitutes all over the country. My boss would ask me, so what did you do in Atlanta? I remember going to Atlanta, Georgia, and I did not leave the hotel room for three, four days. He says, what did you do there? How many people did you see? And you know, I lied through my teeth. I didn't leave the room. I just stayed in the room. And uh, it was uh, a shameful behavior. And of course, I ended up losing that job and I was out of business. And I became an insurance agent. And also, uh, when I made a sale, I thought, as I mentioned before, I thought it was the greatest thing. And I went to celebrate. When I didn't make sales, I was so depressed. I, I had to feel good about myself. So I went to my friends. And before you know it, uh, the uh, disease progressed until I had obsessions about prostitutes. And that really kicked in. And I started following prostitutes in the street and following them. And I, and it, and stayed in there in the brothels and in the whorehouses and, and all day and, and acted as if I was somebody that I wasn't. And, and it must have looked really, really strange. A Hasidic man living in a whorehouse, leaving Borough Park early in the morning and coming home at night. And, uh, and my particular prostitute, when she was with somebody else, it became a, uh, so painful, so painful that she was with somebody else. Oh, you know, now we're coming to the summer. The summers, my family was in the country and I was in the city and I moved in with a prostitute here in New York. And it was so crazy. I was walking the streets. Everybody gets a kick out of this story. I was walking the streets. She had a dog. I was walking the street. And I didn't have any shoes on. That's how crazy I was. Here's a ascetic man with a beard and payas walking in the Upper West Side with a uh, with obviously a prostitute on my side, and I'm walking the dog. and And a Hamish guy asks me uh, in Yiddish, "You know, it it doesn't really uh, look good that you're walking around with a dog." <laughs> and I said, "It's not my dog; it's hers." <laughs> That's how crazy it was. Uh, trying to find kosher food. I'm, here I am, word, transgressing every biblical. Uh, uh, and there I was. And it was devastating. And as I started before, I uh, talked a little bit about uh, wanting to end my life. Ironically, as it was, one of my girlfriends that I was seeing, she had got into AA and she didn't want to see me anymore. She was going to leave her business. And, and that's when I started following her to AA meetings. And I said, this is really something special going on at these meetings. But, you know, and then finally she said, you, you are not an, an alcoholic. You are a sex addict. There must be some fellowship for you. And ironically, there was an, uh, a newspaper uh, article in the New York Post, which was really uh, a negative report. It, it talked about how terrible people we are, how crazy we are, and it talked about it. And, uh, and at the end of the article, it said, if you need help, you can call this number. So I called that number, and they sent me to uh, 
essay. And that's how I ended up at my first essay meeting. And uh, I was used to going to these AA meetings where there were hundreds and hundreds of people. So I walked into this first essay meeting. It was in Hell's Kitchen. It's a neighborhood. And uh, now it's a fancy neighborhood. In those days, it's exactly what they call it, Hell's Kitchen. It was on 23rd Street and 9th Avenue. Unless you had a motorcycle and a bomber jacket, you really didn't belong there. (laughs) And I walked into my first meeting, and there was hundreds of people over there. And I said, wow, this is great. People are counting their days. And and everybody's talking about cocaine and and liquor. And uh, I said, where is the sexaholic meeting? And they said, oh, that's upstairs in the library. I go upstairs in the library, and there were two gentlemen there. And uh, they were both HIV positive. And they were saying how SA is helping them. And they helped me. These two guys saved my life, really. And they uh, I don't know if they're alive today, but uh, they sent me to the strong meetings. And that's where I met my sponsor in Beth Israel Hospital. There was a meeting on Sunday nights. And, uh, and my recovery began on just going to meetings. As obsessed as I was with uh, prostitutes, that's as I, I became obsessed with uh, meetings, which was good. It didn't help my business. I wasn't (laughs) selling too much insurance, but I was going to meetings. I couldn't get out of bed in the morning. I was totally uh, depressed. I didn't know how to uh, work the steps or anything like that. My wife was going absolutely insane. She, uh, in those days, the white book was a pamphlet. It was a was a stencil pamphlet. So I had a copy. I was lucky enough to get a copy. I had one. And of course, she found it immediately. And she ran with it to a therapist and to my rabbi. And and of course, 30 days later, she was in her ninth month. She had a baby. And she, my rabbi went to visit her in the hospital, but not me. She, I wasn't allowed to come visit her. It, it was total, total chaos. But my sponsor, Jeff, was just telling me, Just go to meetings and don't act out and everything will be okay. Go to meetings, don't act out and everything will be okay. And what was wonderful about this guy was, number one, he's not Jewish. He was a a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant from the Midwest, from Wisconsin, which was totally uh, antithesis of my being Jewish from New York, which was big talker and yelling and screaming crazy. And he had both feet on the ground. And uh, more than ever, he had four years at the time. I thought that he was God. Four years. I said, I couldn't believe this. Four years. Four years. And I was still crazy, but I came to meetings. And I joined the fellowship. And I... There are stories that happened in my recovery that are totally miraculous how I stayed sober. I used to, till I got up in the morning, I refused to go to shul. I was dominating the house. And, and I would get to, I would leave my house at about uh, 12.30 to get to Manhattan at 1.30. And there was a meeting at 1.30 in Manhattan. 1.30, then I, right after the meeting, there was fellowship. And I'd stay there to 2.30 to 3.30, talk to the guys. 
And then there was another meeting at six o'clock. So I had this window from 3.30 to six o'clock and I would hang out. And of course, I couldn't last in between the meetings. So I went to the whorehouse and I stood outside in the whorehouse and I'd be calling my sponsor. There was no phones at that time. I was calling from pay phones and my sponsor would say, call somebody else. You're not in recovery. You're standing there. <laughs> and this was going on. And, but I made it through the day and I counted the day. I came the next day. I came to the meeting. My name is Noah. I have three days. And everybody went, yay, we got three days. I did the same thing day after day, day after day. I had no head to read. They told me, got to read the big book. I said, the big book is not that big. <laughs> what do you call it a big book? I got to read the white book. I said, the white book caused me all the aggravation at home. So I'm walking around with a suitcase. It looks like I'm a businessman, but I'm really walking around with a white book and a blue book. And I'm on the subways navigating between meetings, trying to get from one place to another. And uh, the most devastating thing that happened at that point in my life was uh, USA politics. Uh, for those of you who don't know, there was a, uh, in, uh, this was in 1989, I was, uh, got sober. In 1990, 1991, there was the uh, breakup of SA, which was uh, gay men uh, having, being sober in the program. At that point, Roy Kay, they voted in, in, uh, in California that New York sobriety was not considered sobriety because we had gay men that was in committed relationships. And, uh, now the rule is that you have to be in a marriage. And New York, my sponsor's sponsor was a gay man. He was a wonderful guy. His name is David. It's a wonderful man, but it just so happens to be that he's gay and he's in a gay committed relationship. And uh, at that point, I had brought in, I mean, I got a phone call one day. A lot of you know about Hainach. So Hainach called me up and I became Hainach's sponsor. And uh, then another guy by the name of Gedalia, he's dead. He died of, uh, of, of AIDS. He was in the fellowship. There was more and more fellowship. So before you know it, there was more and more people. The Hamisher people went to the SA side. They did not go to the other side. So I don't know whether I was right or wrong, but I stood with the SA side. I did not go to the SRA side, but I lost all my friends. So I became more and more of a loner. So I was already four years sober. My relationship with my sponsor had dwindled out. And here I was. Uh, struggling with making a living, struggling with uh, the program, with fellowship, with friends, finding new meetings, finding... And I was going to both meetings, SRA meetings, SA meetings, and uh, until finally uh, I got a new sponsor by the name of Harvey, who, uh, who read me the riot act. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, things straightened out uh, a little bit from then on. As I mentioned before, my recovery takes place more not on a sexual level, but more on a sane level. The work that has happened in me has been in my sanity. I realize what it says, God is doing for ourselves what we cannot do for 
what we cannot do for ourselves has happened to me in ways that I realize how sane I am. I can't believe that I'm sane, you know? I can't believe that people act in crazy ways in, in shul or in business or wherever I work, and I don't react. And I say, that's them and that's not me. It has nothing to do with me, which was impossible in my early recovery. And it was impossible, definitely impossible when I was acting out. So that is the new me, my relation. I never was able to fill in. I was never able to commit to anything. I am a chronic dreamer and not committed guy. I do not commit to anything. I'm the guy that sat in yeshiva and did not complete the semester. You're supposed to have a study partner in yeshiva. I went through this with a million study partners. Most people come to yeshiva the first day of the semester. They choose a study partner. You work on of getting a study partner, and that's your study partner the rest of the semester. Except for Noach. Noach, within three days, was out and finding around and went through semesters of not having study partners. And of course, not committing, not finishing anything. And here I, again, I have study partners. I'm having study partners. I have a study partner who died. I learned with him for 21 years and he died. <laughs> And I look at it, and uh, his death was like a celebration that, wow, I'm sober, and I was able to learn with someone, to study with someone for 21 years, and all because of this program. Committed every single day, 9 o'clock in the morning, that's where we studied, the same place, the same thing, we were there for each other. Now I have somebody else, the same thing, same time, show up. I was never able to keep a job. Right now I have a job. I'm up to my second job where I go to work every day, same time, show up, do my job, come home. Be there no matter how crazy my children are, my grandchildren are, I'm there for them. Whatever I can do for them, I do. Whatever I cannot do for them, I cannot do. I'm not their father. I'm not their mother. I'm their grandfather. I'm their husband. I'm my wife's husband. I'm not her father. I'm not her mother. I'm not her therapist. And that's it. If she feels like breaking my chops, God bless her. She deserves it. And one thing that I have to remember daily is what Harvey told me many, many years ago. Noah, she never cheated on you. You cheated on her many, many times. Just remember that. And if I could write that on my hand, forever and ever, where would I be if, if she knew how much I cheated on her? Where would she not be if how much, what would happen to me if, if she cheated on me? So life is really good. For the first time in my life, I'm not a compulsive spender. I have a savings account. I have a job. She has a job. We have children. I just, we just married off our last child, our eighth. You know, people have talked about, I don't want to join this program because people are not going to want to, uh, I'm going to be uh, excommunicated from the community and nobody will want to take my child to marry off. And 
I married off eight children in this program, and nobody has told and came to the wedding and said, you're excommunicated because your daughter, your daughter is the son of a sex addict, or your son is a daughter. They're all married. I had children with problems. The best thing, thanks to Harvey, was telling them exactly what my problem is. I told them the problems. I have beautiful letters from my children thanking me and thanking me and thanking me. And he's told me, and learning the boundaries of who to talk to and who not to talk to and what to say and not to say, because I am totally out of control. I totally out of control. As far as my relationship with God is concerned, is it the best relationship? No, I am a sex addict. I want to have either the best relationship in God. I want to be sitting on God's uh, knees and God holding me. And uh, it's not like that sometimes. Sometimes it's a relationship of the least I can do is just praise God, take out a piece of paper and say, thank you, God, for my eyes I can see. Thank you for my nose. Thank you for my teeth. Thank you for my ears. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. And please open up my heart to you and, and remind me that you're in charge and I'm not in charge. So I think that's it, Daniel. Is that it? Is that, did I go over time? You were perfect. Yeah, I was riveted. And... Um... And for me, the, the the key really is as well that um, this program is giving me sanity, uh, and I feel it. Experience, I experience that sobriety of my of my mind slowly. It's 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 not fast, but slowly sobering up, and being able to show up, show up for life, and that's the miracle for me. I think, and it all does start with sexual sobriety because without that, I wouldn't have anything. But the real miracle is my my brain slowly becoming saner, and it really is a miracle. Um, so thank you very much for sharing that. Um, and we're going to go into these questions that we compiled. So the idea behind this podcast is really to be a resource, both mainly for newcomers that, that come in. They, there's so many different concepts that come into uh, when we walk into the rooms that just are alien ideas for us. And I want to look at a few of those ideas. The, we surveyed the world of SA to come up with these questions. And the first question is around this word called lust. So Roy's, one of Roy's uh, genius moments was that he said that we're powerless over lust. He didn't say we're powerless over prostitutes or masturbating, which, you know, it, it, it is a big part of what the problem is, but he brought it and boiled it down to lust. So the first question is, what is lust for you? How do you see lust? How do you understand lust for yourself? I look at the... the uh I look at the, as my, my, uh, when I first came into program, I really had that problem. And my sponsor, Jeff, taught me, let's keep it simple. Keep it really, really simple. Let lust be outside of the marriage. And you and your wife is not lust. We'll work about it later. You're not going to go from a crazy sex addict to becoming a angel, you know. And that really, really helped me. So I would give newcomers that advice if you're married, you know. But then again, there are people later on, as we progressed with our relationship, Jeff had told me that one of his main uh, MOs was acting out sexually with his wife, with himself while his wife was sleeping. 
And then he realized that that was acting out. So on one hand, you can say, well, I'm with my wife in the bed, so I really didn't act out. It's not lust, you know. But on the other hand, it, truly it was lust. So that is something that is progressive to figure it out what it is. To say an answer to everyone, it's very, very difficult. It starts probably for me with boundaries. The number one boundary is any type of looking or any type of uh, thinking outside of my house is considered lust. So that's was what it's not, what, what it is. And then building on that in the bedroom, you know, am I looking at my wife in the bedroom? Am I hoping, am I laying in bed? Am I in too much fear? Do I want to break the uh, sex plan that we have? Am I hoping, am I saying, do I become, am I saying, oh, please soothe me now or, you know, or do I do outrageous things in order that, uh, because I'm angry at her that she said, I know that we have a sex plan and we're supposed to be together tonight, but I'm not feeling well. Can we push it off? And do I start uh, pouting and saying, I'm, you know, you promise, you promise, take care of me, do what you can, and acting like a complete jerk. That's lust. I'm not into the love of it. I'm into this, you know, I deserve sex. That is lust. I deserve, I want what I want, and I want it now. That is the true, true addict. So that is lust for me. And I'm getting recovery. And one of the greatest barometers in my life is my roommate, my partner, who tells me, wow, you've grown. I'm not afraid to tell you anymore that I don't feel good and I want to, and I want to change the sex plan for this week because on Wednesday night or Tuesday night, I have to go someplace and I'm not going to be there for you, for us. It becomes us. It doesn't become for you. And lust, I probably would think that probably with the greatest uh, translation of the word lust would probably be that I enjoy the lust, that I get it and not you. That's all for me and not for you. I guess Roy put it uh, by, by, by calling it progressive victory over lust. In other words, to get it all in one day, it's not, it's not realistic, but sexual exactly. sobriety begins with not acting out. And then we have this progressive victory, which right. for each of us is, is personal. Um, so, okay. So, so the, the next question is basically around um, my uniqueness. Okay. I am especially special. No one acted out as crazy as I did. And I'm and I walk into the rooms and I say, could it possibly work for me? Okay, you guys maybe, but how is it going to work for me? I'm insane. This is not going to work for me. What do you say to that guy? Well, this has happened now. There's a recent phenomenon that has happened, and the big book talks about it. How the original members of the AA were people with low bottom sex addicts. So there was no person walking in after Bill W. or Dr. Bob walked in. They were low bottom. So it was very, very difficult to find somebody to say, this is not going to work for me. He said, well, if you're crazy guy, Dr. Bob, you crazy guy. And before you know it, 
AA grew, and before you know it, there were high bottoms uh, alcoholics. And I think it's in the the second uh, chapter of the AA Big Book that it talks about, or it's in the second of the second steps where it talks about what do we do for these high bottom people. So yes, are there people going to walk into the rooms and say, Noah, I cannot relate to you. I have a little problem. I'm up late at night looking at porn. My wife doesn't know about it. And I have a hard time praying, going to synagogue. I have a hard time working. And I know uh, it's not the right thing to do. And I think it's a good idea if I went to essay. The hardcore essay guys would say, go out there, wait until you trash. Wait until you become a hardcore essay, guys, that you're on the computer 24-7, that you don't go off the computer, not even to go to the bathroom. And you're, and I hate to say it, you're peeing in a cup <laughs> in just in order not to leave the, the screen. But it's very, very difficult. It's a great question. And this question is not our problem. This question has been happening ever because of the success of our program. This is what happened. What's interesting, what you're actually saying is that it, there's no, it's not a question for the low bottom. The actual real question is for the high bottom who hasn't really gotten there yet. No one's really answered that que this question in that way yet, because up until now, we've just been looking at everyone coming in with a low bottom, but really what you're saying is actually it's the guys that haven't really gotten there yet and aren't really feeling completely hopeless. Yeah, the big book asks the same question. The big book asks the same question. What do we tell these guys that have not lost their wives, their children, their houses, their jobs? And what do we do for them? You know, we read this and we raise the bottom. We raise the bottom. It's very, very difficult to raise the bottom. To raise the bottom. And what do I talk to newcomers that have said, I said, what are you waiting for? Are you waiting for your wife to throw you out? Are you waiting for you to lose your job? Are you waiting for this? You know, what are you waiting for? How many people listen? Right. right. So, so I walk in and I believe it's going to work for me because it's worked for you. Um, what do I have to do to stay sober? What do you, <laughs> what do I, what I got to do to actually get sober now? What do I got to do? As they say in AA, you got to do, you got to go through one day. Can you stay sober for one day? That's all I'm asking. Give me one day. I'm your sponsor today. What do I have to do? Give me one day of sobriety. That's it. What about tomorrow? I said, I don't know if I'm going to be your sponsor tomorrow. I don't know. Give me one day of sobriety. What can you do today to stay sober? I said, first of all, get to a meeting right now. You sit in a meeting for that one hour that you're at a meeting. You're not going to act out. The guys are going for coffee afterwards. You go with them. For that hour, you're going to be sitting with them in that car or in that coffee shop, wherever you are. You're not going to act out. They're hanging out. They're sitting in a park. Whatever they're doing, hang out. Just sit with them. Just kill the time. Kill the time to make it through one day. We'll worry about positive sobriety later. We'll worry about just count that effing day. Count that day. Your goal for today, my goal for today is to get into the meeting tomorrow and say, I got one day. And when they clap, you get up and you clap your hands. I made it through one day. I love it when the newcomers have three days and they say, God has kept me sober for three days. 
well, wait about it, well, wait about it, you know, and now the opposite happens. You know, the old timers say, say, I am sober for 30 years. And the newcomers say, I, God has kept me sober for 30 days. And the white book Roy wrote, it's the opposite is true. The old timers should have a little bit of humility and they should say, God has kept me sober. And the newcomers, they should say, I have three days. So. What about withdrawal though? Because I mean, there's, you know, there's not only physical withdrawal, especially for someone who's been masturbating every day for years, which I personally experienced, but there's emotional withdrawal. You went through a withdrawal of, 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 of being completely dependent on, on, on these other women. How, what do we do to, to get through the withdrawal? Do you have any advice for that? There's pain. Go through the pain. Pain. Enjoy the pain. Enjoy. My sponsors used to say, enjoy the, every single day of you putting up with the pain. That's another day that you will not have to do this again. Embrace that pain because if you stop acting out, that pain will alleviate. That pain will go away. But if you give in to this pain, so not only do you putting through the pain now, you're going to have to do it again. It's going to happen again. You act out after 30 days, you're going to go through the withdrawal again. It goes again and again and again. It goes through the cycle of addiction. That is the cycle of addiction. I go through, I act out, and then because I'm in such pain and despair, I stay sober for 30 days. And all of a sudden, after 30 days, I feel, oh, I can do this. And I stop doing it. Then pain comes in and I act out again embrace the pain every single day of pain is a day of recovery that's what they say in the marines i don't know what they say in other armies but in the u.s army they say pain is your friend soldier <laughs> okay but what about what do we say to these guys that do keep going back and relapsing uh, and they just want to get sober i mean what what can we say to them what, how can we help them they obviously there's something number one there's something each one is separate. Every different person is separate. There are some certain people that, that are, as the big book says, they're emotionally, something is wrong. Their anxiety levels are so high. They cannot gra grab the concept of one day at a time. It is so foreign to them. So therefore, there are, nobody can get sober when 30 days at a time. It's impossible, at least on my end, what I understand. But they are so anxious about that so they probably need the help of uh, of a psychiatrist to overcome that anxiety to work at one day one day the one day at a time is the crux of the if you cannot do one day at a time this is a one day at a time program do whatever it takes to say dober today you know do the rituals get up out of morning please god help me stay sober today Please help me. I am powerless that the main, I only have one profession and that profession is to stay sober today. God wants me to stay sober and please give me the willingness to stay sober and give me the tools to stay sober today. Do I have to go to a meeting? Yes. Do I have to write? Yes. Do I have to call people? Yes. Do I have to do whatever it takes? Yes. Do whatever it takes. If I'm lucky, if I have a job, go to the job. If I'm not, Keep in the fellowship, take it through 24, if I have to count. I remember counting minutes. I feel bad I didn't keep the piece of paper. I had a piece of paper that I was counting minutes. I made it through one minute at a time, one minute. I had a notebook, one minute. 
Wow. Okay, so let's talk about the first step. Am I a bad person? I you you went into your bat your first step a little bit. How uh, how do you how do you answer that question? Or people when people come in and they say, "I feel like you know, I feel bad. I feel I feel like I'm in shame. Uh, I, I've done bad things." What what is the answer for that for you? I really had no choice. I really had no. Yes, the things were done. Are they considered according to religious wise? Are they immoral? Some of them were immoral. Some of them are not nice. But let's go. Did you have a choice in it? Noah did not have a choice in this. Noah's upbringing, Noah's physical, Noah's emotional. Noah is so sick. He was so crippled. He had so the only thing that he can do was get immediate gratification. He was addicted. I am addicted to immediate gratification. I must have it right now. So I'm a bad person. I just I didn't know any other solution. No other solution existed. There is no other solution. I am I am powerless over this. See, for me, I did not look anywhere that my life was, was is uh, unmanageable. <laughs> I didn't have to you didn't have to be a genius to look at at Noah to see that his life was uh, unmanageable. As I started writing more and more how life, my life was unmanageable, that I completed nothing, that I was a kid of, of 12 years old, I had on my door that I was going to be a, a lawyer, a doctor, a rabbi, and I was going to be the president of the United States. I have all these things, and I really accomplished nothing. And because of, of this disease and because of my mental health, my emotional uh, disease, anyone said I was rejected by anybody whether it was, as it says in the big book, by the ladies in the knitting, the, the knitting group, they rejected me, or by the summit of the United States uh, Congress. That rejection just put a hole in me that gave me death forever until something filled me up, make me whole, make me the connection where I acted out. Wow, I got that connection. It lasted 10 minutes. I felt calm until the next time I was rejected and was in pain and needed it again. So was I powerless? Yes. Is my life unmanageable? Yes, it was. So how do you explain unmanageable to these guys with the higher bottom that have two cars in the driveway and, uh, and, and manage to keep the entire thing hidden from the world? Difficult. I think that's the same exact question with the high bottoms. It's exact same. This is what the big book talks about the high bottom. When the big book says, talks about high bottom, they use that uh, analogy of the two cars in the garage. That's what they talk about. It is very, very, very difficult. The question is why they are coming to us. Why are they coming here? Why are they coming here? Why did you come to me? You got two cars in the garage. It looks like you got more money that your outfit that you're wearing looks like it's more than my whole, what I own. Your car is probably worth more than my house. <laughs> I mean, what's going on over here? Why did you call me up? What do you want from my life? And so they're going to have to come to it by themselves. They, the There's nothing I can say. I can't burn the car. I can't burn the house down. I can't tell their boss that they're spending his money on porn all day while he's supposed to be working. 
Right. It's a much more subtle concept of unmanageability at that stage of, um, of uh, well, of them driving the car and not letting God drive. And uh, they're going to have to come to it. Each, each of us have to come to it by ourselves. What about insanity? I remember you once sharing that you walked down the streets a hundred times over saying, I'm insane, I'm insane, I'm insane, as part of your first step, as part of building your first step. Was that something that you didn't believe on day one? Well, that was part of my second step because the second step says that. What's the second step? That we came to believe that a power greater than us could restore us to sanity. sanity. In order to get to the second step of that can restore us to sanity, I have to believe that I am insane. So therefore, so the first step said, that I was really sick. I wasn't insane. I'm a sick guy. My life is unmanageable. A guy with cancer can be powerless, right? He can't do anything. He can't do anything with his life. And his life is unmanageable because he has to go to chemotherapy and stay, sit, but it has nothing to do with being insane. He's a sane man. He just has, I'm sorry to say, he has cancer. The second step says that he's that you believe that you are sane but there's a power greater than ourselves that can restore me to sanity. So with the first step, I told myself that I was powerless and my life was unmanageable. And then I had to go over again and again and believe that I was insane and to write it down, my insanities. That's why I repeat this story again and again, that I was walking the streets with a dog without, without shoes on. While the whole Manhattan, you can imagine what, matter, what, what what 87th Street and Broadway looks like in the morning at 8.30 in the morning, bunch of businessmen and women running to work. And here I am, a bum, oh, walking a dog. It was insane, totally insane. And this sex addict believed that it was nothing was wrong with that. So yes, I had to repeat it again. I am insane. I am insane. I am insane. So if there was this much amount of sanity, if a day went by that I said, hey, I did something sane today, that somebody said a terrible thing to me and I didn't answer, says, wow, I'm getting better. You know, we're going to talk about character defects probably if that's where you're going. But uh, I remember... I was walking in the streets of Borough Park and uh, a car walked by some anti-Semite. This is not recent. This was long ago. It must have been, oh, this must have been 20 years ago, at least. So I'm talking about if I'm sober 30, over 30 years, this happened 20, 25 years ago. So I must have been sober in maybe 10, 5, 10 years. So you're talking to a sober man here. You know, you're talking about. <laughs> and some guy calls out of the car. And he says, you effing Jew. And I was so angry. How dare he walk to come to Borough Park on 17th Avenue, a block away from my house. So what does Noah do? Instead of praying for him like I'm supposed to do or let of forgetting it or letting it slide, I run home, I get my car, I jump into my car, and I follow this mother 
And I end up with him and I found him. He was filling up gas at a gas station. I pull out of the gas station. I take out the, the two by four that I picked up that was in my car <laughs> or in my garage. I don't know where it was. And I take it. And the woman that was with him in the car, she was screaming, get out of here, get out of here. And the poor guy was didn't know what to do. <laughs> and there I looked at myself and I said, man, I am insane. I am insane, insane. I'm 10 years sober. You know, and I told my therapist afterwards, and my therapist says, you're a very, very sick man. <laughs> <laughs> and I shared it at SA meetings, you know, and I was embarrassed to share it. Here's a 10, here I'm going to a meeting, everybody looking at it, knowing the great 10 years of sobriety, and I'm sharing about this story with acting like a complete jerk. But it did do one thing that I am insane. So there are glimpses of sanity, you know, but this was a glimpse of insanity. What a story. Um, and, and how do you understand the allergy? Um, because the allergy is something that a lot of people kind of have a difficulty with in understanding. Because, you know, if I'm allergic to strawberries, I just won't take strawberries yet. Here I am allergic to lust and I keep coming back for more. So how do you understand that? There are people that love, uh, the people that love food. <laughs> they love food, you know, you're looking at me, I don't know how much you see of me, but, uh, you know, as much as I've grown in other ways, but in, uh, when it comes to food, I'm not doing too well. And, uh, you know, and people that have the doctors tell them your cholesterol is high, you know, you're, you're taking in too much sugar. And what do they do? They just love that sugar. They just love the fatty food and they just love it and love it and love it. And then before you know, until they get sick, physically sick, then they said, I had enough and they get tired, sick and tired of being sick and tired. What do they say? No way, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. All right, let's talk about surrender. Um, this is a concept that's very alien for people walking in the room. How do you understand surrender? How does surrender work? What does surrender mean? Especially this concept that I always had that I've got to keep fighting the good fight. And now you tell me that if, if, if I want to win the fight, I've got to actually surrender. How do you understand that? And how do you do it? Uh, I think that I do not want to win the good fight. I really have to surrender the fact that I'm going to win this fight. I'm not going to win this thing. This thing is bigger than me. This disease has proven to me time and time again that Noah has no chance of beating this. No matter, no chance. I remember I was in graduate school. So in graduate school, I must have been, I graduated, uh, I was uh, in uh, 15 years ago. So I'm, uh, I was, I'm 15 years sober at the time. And there's this wonderful, and so I'm 15 years sober, I'm in graduate school, I'm living a normal life, you know, I'm learning, I'm going to graduate school, uh, everything I dreamt of. And there's this woman in the class that comes over to me, I'm 15 years sober, by the way. And she says, uh, can you drive me home? And I said, sure. I don't even think twice about it because, hey, I'm a recovered sect addict, I can do anything, you know. So I drive her home. And before you know it, I'm already thinking about driving around their house because she had told me in class, what you need is a good, uh, she, 
uh, hey, you need to cheat on your wife a little bit. That's what you need. Like that was her, uh, Mishagasta, her craziness that she told me. And this went into my head. It went into my head. And all of a sudden, I was no more a 15-year sober man. I was a guy within the first 30 days. I had to surrender this. I had an obsession that needed to be surrendered. She was no this was no longer a subject of uh, of something from the past of of uh, living in whorehouse. I had to surrender the fact that I was in graduate school. I had to surrender the fact that I was 15 years sober. I had to surrender and surrender and surrender and get on my hands and knees and say, forget about the fact. I was judging myself. I should have never driven her home. I should have never said anything. I should have never done anything. I should have never driven around her block to see where she lives. And I had to surrender. I had to walk into essay meetings, 15 years sobriety, walk in, decided to do a 90 and 90, walk in like a little baby, say, hi, my name is Noach and I'm a low life sex addict. And I have to surrender. There's this woman that I met yesterday and I think I have an obsession about her and I need to, and I need to surrender that. And I'm committing to the group, to everyone here, that number one, I'm not gonna do anything physical. I'm not gonna to talk to her in class. I'm not going to touch her. I'm not gonna offer her to ride home anymore. That's it. And I'm committed to coming back here tomorrow to do a 90 and 90. I surrender my business. I was working at the time. I was working during the day and I'm going to school at night. I'm committed to come here every morning. I'm committed to tell everybody in the group about it. I surrender, I surrender, I surrender. Letting go, surrendering it. Because the minute I think I can handle it, the story happened because I thought I could handle it. And the surrender, the recovery happened because I have to admit, I can't surrender, surrender. The minute somebody tells me that they can handle it, I said, whoa, 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 whoa. You're in the wrong program. This program is for people that can't handle it. I can't handle this. You're a better man than me. That's a great lead into the next question, which is around complacency, because if complacency comes in, in, in and starts putting its roots, this kind of story is going to happen. And I'm going to find out very quickly why I can't get complacent if I'm a real sex addict. If I'm the real deal. There's no room for complacency, right? I mean, how else do you, uh, do you have any other stories around complacency and how to stay away from it? Well, complacency in my life is my anger. I don't know if you got up to anger yet, but as soon as I feel that I'm getting impatient and angry, I know that there's something wrong with my program. That there's complete. That there's that there's something wrong with my program. If I become needy, I have to keep on going, surrendering. My job is I go to synagogue every morning, and I do my twelve-step work in my prayers. As much as I try to use the words of the prayer book, but most of my prayer book is surrounding surrender. 
surrender. As soon as I start leafing through the prayer book and start figuring out my day, oh, I got to do this today, and I got to do that today, and I got to do that today, and my prayers are just, thank you, God, rub-dub-dub, thank God for all that you gave me, and have a guy's day, see you tonight, see you tomorrow. I know that that's complacency. I have to slow the hell down, slow down, and just say, God, I surrender, I turn my will and my life over to you. You're my life, you're my life. I turn my will and my life over to you. Thank you, God, for my sobriety. Thank you, God, for lifting the obsession today. Thank you, thank you, thank you. If I don't do that, I become complacent. Yeah, I relate to that a lot. Uh, I also do a lot of my 12-step um, prayer work within the organized prayers, and it, hel- it helps me a lot to focus. That's really what I'm there for. That's that, 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 that allows me to then bring God back into my life and, and give him my thoughts and my actions, 100%. Um, how, we've talked about this a little bit before. How, what does a healthy relationship look like? How, how, how have you developed healthy relationships? Have you had to do other work outside of, um, you know, outside of traditional just step work and, you know, what does that look like a healthy relationship for you? Well, I've done healthy. I am truly, truly, uh, if you, uh, the, the psychologist would call it a borderline person with a borderline personality. You know, that's me. You know, I am, I don't take, you know, in, in, in OA or in AA, they talk about OA because the fellowship of women, but you might say that I have a female side to me of being totally, uh, I don't have friends, I have hostages. That's what they say there. You know, my friends are hostages. So yes, in this program, as being a, a sponsor, you know, you, one can be a sponsor, healthy people. My, my sponsors, I didn't like those sponsors that were, totally in control of my life. I like the sponsors who were kind, validating, upset, and saying, hey, this is the way I do it. Sometimes I needed a tough love, you know, but did I go outside the program? I definitely did, you know. I spent years of therapy and uh, years uh, I years in therapy, individual therapy, group therapy. You know, outside of organized religion, you know, I I uh, consider myself. I mean, I'm a, I'm a reco- I am a recovering Hasidic Jew. <laughs> I try to walk away from the. Uh, I get upset. My obsessions now go according to what we are doing. You know, I become a, uh, uh, depressed with politics. I become depressed with uh, how we are perceived amongst the world. Um, so, yes, I've gone outside. And I talked about this at the beginning of our chat, that my recovery has been in that area of not falling into behaviors or thought systems that are devastating to me that can lead me to, as you said, not, not maybe not physical acting out, but emotional acting out, emotional sobriety, being, being depressed or anxious or losing oneself and completely. Yeah, we'll talk about that a little bit also a bit later. What, what about uh, the difference between uh, lustful sex and intimate loving sex uh, in, 
in the bedroom. Um, how do you perceive the difference between the two? And you mentioned that before as well, but just to touch on that. Well, I've been blessed <laughs> with a wife who has, uh, who is very, very honest and upfront. And uh, our relationship, our sexual relationship will not begin unless we are totally honest. You know, for me, a lustful relationship will be that I'm still angry at her, yet I want to act out. I want to have sex with her. I mean, that's, that, that, as I said before, is the definition of lust. I want to get, I want to get my, uh, my rocks off, like they say, and, uh, but what's that? So she, there's no such thing. It will not happen in our bedroom. I don't know what happened the other day, but uh, I had said something at dinner and she had requested an apology for what I had said. And then we had, then, you know, I went out and came back. And before you know it, we were in the bedroom. And she just said, this ain't happening until we talk about what would happen. So that's what happens in, in my case. Have I done the same thing? Yes, I try to do the same thing. But I'm the sex, I have to remember, I am the sex addict. She's not the sex addict. So yes, do I have to be more coherent and more cognitive and more judgmental of myself? Yes, but I'm lucky that it's not going to happen. What do you say to people that ask about getting into a relationship, um, you know, um, single essays? How long do they have to wait? How long should they wait? How sober should they be? What's your, what's your take on that? Well, for everyone, it's different, but usually they make the rule of a year of sobriety, probably, before they start dating. Put it like this. If I was uh, <laughs> if I was single at the time, my sponsor would have said, Schwartz, you got to wait 10 years. <laughs> he was probably been right, you know. I'm probably still not ready for a relationship, and I'm sober over 30 years. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> that is funny. All right, let's talk about the higher power. We've talked about this as well. We've touched on it. How do you experience your relationship with your higher power on a day-to-day -day basis? And, and let's add to that question. How do you experience what they call a spiritual experience, a spiritual awakening? How, how, how have you experienced that? How do you describe that for yourself? Uh, you know, my earliest experience, uh, spiritual awake uh, experience in this program was that I remember I was uh, roughly around uh, 28 days of so sobriety. And at an appointment, as I mentioned before, I'm, I was in the insurance business and I went and had an appointment with some, with some uh, uh, wealthy guy. And more or less, he threw me out of the office. He did not want to see me. And I, you know, this was perfect for me. I'm only 20 some odd days uh, sober. So this is a perfect, perfect time 
to go act out. This was permission from God. God, you know, I tried, you know. So I left the office and I start walking up uh, Broadway. Broadway is, uh, for those of you who have never been to New York, but Broadway runs crooked. New York is first, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, and then there's one Broadway that is crooked from the Lower East Side, walks all the way upper west side, and, up, uh, and it's crooked. So I'm walking up Broadway. And in those days, there was no cell phones. And out of my role, I was a member of SA. So what does a member of SA do the first thing? You go into a bank, you get a roll of quarters, and you get a little notebook and a pen. And in the notebook, you had everybody's mem- number on it. And you had a roll of quarters. And you went to the, to the, uh, to the pay phone, and you called up people. There's this wonderful, wonderful guy that he looked, he looked and he talked like my father. He had four years of that. He was my sponsor. My sponsor had sent me, call him all the time. He was, my sponsor had four years. This guy had must have two, three years. But he worked the program. He was a GA guy. So I call him up and I tell him, I went to this office. I wanted to sell him insurance. And he said no to me. And this loving, loving man tells me, he said, that must have been very, very painful for you. And there I was on Broadway and 22nd Street, I'll never forget, and I started to cry. I said, yes, it is. It's very, very painful. He said, did you make a presentation before? And yes, I was so prepared for this presentation. I'd done all the work. I really wanted to sell this. And he didn't even let me into the office. He said he had no time for me. He threw me out like a dog. He said, you must have felt terrible. There I was telling him all about it. We did not talk about sex. That's so great of you to call me. You can call me anytime. No. I'm feeding the, the telephone with nickels. Feeding again, nickels. And then he said, so what are you going to do now? He said, well, it's. 2.30, 2.30, I can walk up Broadway. By the time I get to Broadway, I can get, it's only 22nd Street. I can walk up all the way to 66th Street. It'll probably take me four hours to get there. If I make phone calls every couple of blocks, I can probably make there by six o'clock and 5.30, the guys are hanging out outside of the church already so we can, I can be there. He says, sounds like a great plan. He said, you know what? You can call me every three blocks. And there it was. I called them every three blocks. And he was there for me every three blocks. I called him up, I called him up, I called him up. And that was like the first spiritual awakening I had that number one, I was not a bad person. Number two, I was not a uh, arrogant person thinking that he, uh, now somebody would call me. Uh, see, I'm not as spiritual as this guy. I would probably say, who the hell do you think you are that this guy has to buy insurance from you? you know? This guy was a loving guy. It was a, a real, real spiritual awakening. A truth, true spiritual awakening you were also not alone that i mean the thing that i love the most about this program is that we have that connection with each other that we pick up the phone and we share what's really hurting us and the other guy can just say wow that sounds really painful the fellowship of the spirit it's beautiful is there a difference between sobriety and recovery I think the people that are uh, 
that don't have sobriety say they're in recovery. <laughs> I don't have any days now, but I'm definitely in recovery. <laughs> That's funny. I was asked once to go down to Lakewood to give a speech. And I gave my same spiel, my same talk about uh, got to count days and days are very important. And, you know, the more days you have, the more time you'll get sober and more time. And all of a sudden, three, four guys were standing up already. They were like standing and they started attacking me. I have recovery. I'm a different person. I may have acted out six months ago, but I had five years before that. And I had six months and I, and I got into it with them. I should have never gotten into them with them, you know. So it didn't work for me. It doesn't work for me. I am frightened. I am, I am frightened. You know, Daniel, you want to know my number one fear? My number one fear is that I will act out. And once I act out, my acting out will reach new, new bottoms. Everything that I learned in the rooms, I will do. And everything that I learned in the rooms and everything that I learned in other programs, I will do. And everything and my life will fall apart totally. And I will either end up in a cemetery or in a hospital or in a prison or in all three at one time. And how can that happen? I figured it out once. I can be in a prison in the hospital in the cemetery. <laughs> so that is my main fear. In a prison morgue. In <laughs> prison work, exactly. So do I want recovery? I get recovery, I guess, is a is a a, a present from God. Sobriety is what I have to work together with God. I want to be sober just for today. That's beautiful. I remember once saying to uh Heinach that I, I'm scared I'm gonna act out. He's, and he said to me, That's a healthy fear. And that was a validation as well. Some fears are healthy. It's interesting. Um, and, and to go back on emotional sobriety, so how how do you today understand emotional sobriety, which is really the next, it's the next stage, it's the next level, as, uh, as Bill W. called it, the next frontier. So how do you understand emotional sobriety? It's number, it's the two things that the Judeo-Christian uh, belief, we as Jews believe it's uh, keep away from bad and do good. Number one is keeping good. How are my character defects? If I act out in anger, am I judgmental? Am I doing these things so I am not emotionally sober? I may have not lost my sexual sobriety, but if I scream at my wife or I judge her, I'm sarcastic to her. Am I sarcastic to my children? Am I sarcastic to people at work? Or I'm mean, I have a mean streak to me. I'm a mean person. I can say things. If I feel that I'm working more than anybody else around here, I become mean. If I do that, I'm not emotionally sober. And talking about character defects, so is ego the, the root of the problem? Is self the root of the problem? What do we Of course, root is those. That's the self. They talk about anger and Anger and grandiosity, the main thing is anger and fear, anger and fear. And what's that from? That's from my ego. I'm angry because you did not do something for me. You should have done something for me. I'm afraid that God is not going to be there for me. You're not going to be there for me. I'm afraid that this thing is not going to work out. I'm afraid. I'm afraid. 
I'm afraid because first word is in the sentence of I'm afraid is I am afraid. I am angry. It's not going to work out. I'll be angry. At work right now, they're talking about different uh, times. What is, uh, I have my time when nobody wants to, I have a time when I work, nobody wants to come in in my crazy hours. But, I, but they're doing over the hours. I immediately chose my hours. It looks like I'm going to get my hours. But I'm still thinking maybe those other people are getting better hours than me. And here, Noah is thinking, you got your hours. What do you care what other people are doing? It's the fear. Something's getting, somebody else is getting something better. That's a character defect. Forget about it. You got what you got. You're happy. Your life is good, Noah. Your life is really, really good. They need to push you around because they don't have a relationship, because they don't have children, because they don't have what they don't have, what the, whatever is going on, they don't have. Relax. Take it easy. No one's going to take anything that belongs to you. And if they do take it, it's because God wanted it that way. It's easy to talk to talk, very tough to walk the walk. So let's talk about the root of the whole program uh, and everybody, you know, every newcomer meeting in the world, uh, you're going to hear the same thing over and over again. If it's a good newcomers meeting, they're going to say, and, and it's something that I'm sure you didn't hear much about in your first meeting. I definitely did not hear much about it in my first meeting 18 years ago here in Israel. Um, the steps, the program, the steps, how would you describe the steps? Because this word, the steps, I mean, you walk in, it's like an alien language, right? Most people don't come in from AA. How as a body, not, and I don't mean one by one, but as a body or as a spiritual body, how do you describe the steps? Well, I would describe it as I uh, spoke to you. You know, I would describe it as we talked about, truly. Of The main thing is sobriety. The main thing is staying sober today. You will see, as you stay sober, you will start feeling pain. You will feel pain. You know, and... If you don't feel pain, you're going to be on a pink cloud. So enjoy that pink cloud. Ride that pink cloud for as, as much as you can. And if you want, you can read this book that I gave you, the blue book, the, the, the big book. You can read the white book. You can read recovery. Continue. You can read whatever you want. You know. But your recovery is going to happen only when you start having pain. This step book is how to deal with the pain. That's what this book is. This is the pain book. The cancer patients, every single doctor in the world has sold, said that people that go through cancer treatments that are in pain have a better chance of recovery if they have a spiritual connection. And they are dealing with their pain because of a spiritual connection. The reason why we, that is this book. So yes, you're going to hear about the books from day one, you know, some people come in, here we have God your eyes. Some people come in from God your eyes and they're in such pain from a recovery from God your eyes, from not acting out. So they're ready for the step works. They're ready for live meetings. They're ready to join. But yes, so I would, you're asking me a 
easy way to define what is the 12 steps. The 12 steps is the guidebook, the 12 step book of how to deal with pain. The pain management book of a recovering addict. So do you just do them and then you're done? How, what do you do with this thing? <laughs> Uh, you know, one of the greatest things about going to Manhattan meetings, which that's what the only place there were meetings was, we had very famous people that came to our meetings, you know, and uh, musicians were in New York and they're sex addicts. And of course they came to the, some of them were mandated to come. We had a sign off on them that they came and some of them came and there was this guy, he was a musician. And he says, I'm here from California and I have this gig in New York and I'm here. I have to do my 30 days. And he came every single day and he's with a big smile on his face. He said, today I did step one. Comes to the next day. Today I did step two. Today I did step three. Today I did step four. And after 30 days, we didn't see him anymore. He says, I want to thank all of you. I did my 12 steps. I think it was 12 days later. He completed his steps. One of the old timers I met him, he's asked me if I remember, and he says, did you ever look him up online to see if he's uh, still uh, writing music? I said, no, I haven't seen it. He says, go ahead. I said, the other guy, I wrote, he said, yo, that other guy is dead. But this guy is, <laughs> I know. A true, true recovering person, a true, true person that, as you said, that that is not happy with counting days or is not happy with his... Uh, uh, with his connection to God. You know, let me uh, give an addendum to that. Uh, the, the, the book of, of pain is probably the book of connection. As I said before, the analogy of the, uh, of the pain would probably be how to deal with pain and how to connect. That would probably be the true book. How to deal with pain and how to connect with God. If I would write a book, you know, how to deal with pain and connect because by doing these things, no matter how painful it is to do a fourth step or a fifth step or a ninth step, that's how I connect to God. Things go better. Things go better afterwards. You know, it's interesting because my story is actually uh, that uh, I did, I knew that the pain was going to come. I went three months in the pink clouds and it was only afterwards. I mean, this is, only four and a half years ago, but it was, it was after three months of being on a pink cloud that I was, I, I didn't want the pain to come and I'd heard enough to know that it was going to come. And that's when I started following the steps, but, uh, and I'm, and I'm very lucky in that sense uh, uh, because I managed to ride that pink cloud into the steps. And uh, that's my story. Well, that's everybody does that. I did that. Everybody does. Well, I really didn't do it. I was I was uh, white knuckling it until I uh, uh, I surrendered and said, "Okay, I'm going to do the steps." Right, white knuckling only lasts so long, though, as we know. What? White knuckling only lasts so long, as we know, and then it fails us. But then I realized I was really not white until I heard one day that I have to do th steps one, two, and three at the same time. You know, so I did it. You know, I'm powerless. My life is unmanageable. I'm insane. I'm insane. I'm insane. I turn my will and my life over to you, God. Please take this away. Please take this away. Please take this away. And that's how I'd walk the streets of Borough Park and talking to myself. Yeah, my sponsor calls it the one, two, three waltz. Absolutely. That's exactly what it is. Exactly what it is. Okay, so uh, meetings. What should I share about in meetings? Everything. 
<laughs> except if you are a, uh, except if the guy sitting next to you, you cheated with his wife, I guess. <laughs> or unless the guy sitting next to you, we'll see that uh, goes now to the Hamisha meetings. The Hamisha meetings, uh, well, I call it the community meetings. The world, we have a lot of community meetings in our uh, community. And a lot of people know each other from outside of the, from the inside of the community. So we have to be careful in our community that, you know, we share our guts in the community. And this guy just came into one meeting. And before you know it, this guy's a loose cannon. And before you know it, he will uh, uh, come to synagogue and, and tell your rabbi all about you, even though, you know, the truth of the matter is, what can you tell my rabbi? You know, my rabbi has heard it all from me, but. I'm talking about somebody new in recovery that's in recovery for 30 days or so, and then he, you know, he's trying to change his life. He doesn't need this headache of some jerk coming into a meeting and then repeating it outside of the meeting that uh, Moshe is a sex addict and he goes to SA meetings. So at that point, Moshe, there's nothing wrong with Moshe protecting himself and walking out of the meeting. But otherwise, you will walk into a meeting where nobody knows you that all you know is there are a bunch of people and you'd have no fear and no, you know. If you know people, there are people that don't walk and they look at me and they say, oh, you're going to repeat it because you, I don't even know who you are. That's wrong. But I'm talking about if you know for sure, if you meet your brother at a meeting, uh, you know. We went to uh, a convention and my nephew was at the meeting. So my nephew was, when I finally called up and said, told the, uh, that I was coming for the weekend, so he said, oh, that's great that you're coming because uh, you have a nephew that's coming. And he's totally in fear of meeting you. He's heard about you, uh, that you're in the program. So I said, okay, I'm coming. So he met me. He was in total shock. He was brokenhearted, you know. So I hugged him and I tell him, okay, you know, that was that, you know. So he still had, he did not share in front of me. But uh, that's that, you know, he lives out of town. And uh, so what to share at the meetings? I was lucky. There was no such thing as the community meetings. So therefore, it was, I was the only uh, Jew at the meeting at the time. So I was able to share anything and everything. I felt judged at the time about my community and how we behave and what we do. My own sponsor didn't understand a lot of things. But then again, he did understand. So... Is there a difference between a toxic meeting and a, a, a good meeting that, you know, a recovering meeting, a good recovered meeting? What is the difference? Oh, you know, people talk about the toxic meeting where they talk about, uh, you know, sexual acting out. That's a, that's a stupid meeting. A toxic meeting is where there's a lot of anger and blame and a lot of self-pity and there's no work. That's for me, that's a toxic meeting. I, I picked up a guy who once drove home from meeting, the guy that was giving me a ride home, put a guy in the car and it was just sharing, you know, all about the places he acted out, you know. And I was just sitting there looking at this guy like he's crazy, you know, what's he coming for? And the driver of the car finally told him, shut up, <laughs> which was good. So, yes, there's toxicity and there's stupidity and there is uh, recovery, recovery meaning. Now we can use a recovery so there could be somebody that's sober for three days 
that he shares more at a recovery meeting than somebody that's sober for three years and is totally toxic and judgmental and angry. Right. Okay. So we're going to finish with uh, the same three questions that I'm asking everyone to finish off. And the first question is um, for you, what's the most important thing in the program? Surrendering on a daily basis, surrendering to God on a daily basis. Okay. And you touched on this before. Have the, have the 12 promises come true in your life? Yes, but they come and go. They come and go, you know, Yes. Do I have financial insecurity today? No. Did I have before? Yes. Everything works and works and works. Do I, do I, as I talk, you know, sitting over here, I got teared up talking about my past. Why? I still feel bad. I, you know, I don't, I regret. So yes, the 12 promises have happened in my life. What if I work the steps better, would it do a better job? Probably. Or, Definitely, if I trust more. And finally, what's the biggest gift that you've received from recovering in SA? A happy marriage. Well, I want to thank you so much for joining me. And I've thoroughly enjoyed today's chat. Uh, thank you so much for being here, uh, Noah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's SA Fireside Chat. We hope you've enjoyed listening and gained as much as we have producing it. Anything you've heard on this podcast is strictly the opinion of the individual speaker. The principles of SA are found in our 12 steps and 12 traditions. If you have any questions you would like to pose to today's speaker or a burning desire to reach out to them, you can write to me at daniel at safefireside.com. Remember, SA is self-supporting through its own contributions. You can donate to Seventh Tradition by going to sa.org forward slash donate. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast or visit safireside.com to hear all the previous fireside chats, as well as the future ones as soon as they're released. May God bless you and keep you until then.